Welcome to Women on the Line, a community radio national feminist current affairs program featuring the voices of women and gender diverse people, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Nam, Melbourne, and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Emma Hart. These, these findings point to a system that needs to be transformed, that needs to, to hear these women's stories. These are the worst case examples. And it is at the heart of hearing these stories that we must listen to the changes that need to occur to, to ensure that future deaths don't. Women on the Line acknowledges that this program is produced and presented on the land of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nations and that their sovereignty was never ceded. We acknowledge their elders past and present, as well as the traditional owners of the land on which you're hearing us from. This week on the program, we speak with Professor Kylie Cripps, Director of Monash Indigenous Studies Centre and Palawa Woman, about new research she has published on systemic racism embedded in Aboriginal women's deaths. Kylie's research examines police failures in relation to their role as frequent first responders to situations of intimate partner violence against Indigenous women. Our episode today has a strong content warning for intimate partner violence against Indigenous women and also racism. This is Kylie speaking now. Um, my name is Professor Kylie Cripps. I'm a Palawa woman and I'm the director of Monash's Indigenous Studies Centre at Monash Uni. Thanks so much for joining us today, Kylie. So we're going to be speaking about the research you've published in your recent article, Indigenous Women and Intimate Partner Homicide in Australia, Confronting the Impunity of Policing Failures. So what were you wanting to understand when you set out on this project? So what I was wanting to understand uh, in this project was to understand the experience of Indigenous women who had passed away as a result of violence, um, intimate partner violence in particular. I was conscious that often we will see in a newspaper or on a headline on the TV that an Indigenous woman has passed away from violence and yet we don't really know what has led up to that. We don't understand what services or um, responses were involved in that. And certainly we don't understand the opportunities that might have been available to prevent that experience from, from having happened. And so I was keen to do research in this area to look at the ways that we could prevent future deaths but also to elevate our women's voices on their experiences of violence because the other thing that drew my attention to this space was that, you know, we have seen in the media attention brought to, to, to um, homicide cases such as the case in Queensland where a mum and three kids were killed and that affected change in, in significant and profound ways across the country. You know, people marched in the streets, our parliaments stopped, and we're about to have some coercive law reforms that are going to be implemented across the country. Yet for our women, their country doesn't stop. The country doesn't hear their voices. And that's what I wanted to elevate. I wanted people to, to know and to understand and appreciate the experiences of our women and their stories, their stories of 
surviving and the resilience they've shown to get through the, their experiences and that despite their resilience and their surviving, they've still lost their lives and that there is so much more that we need to do to prevent that for others. And to open those stories that you mentioned and to elevate those voices, your your research, I understand your research examines um, 151 Australian coronial court investigations and inquests over mm. into Indigenous women's deaths over a 20-year period, so from 2000 to 2020. So can you tell us about the methodology of how you approached this project? So this uh, project involved looking at coronial um, cases. Um, and so many um, cases, and, and it started off in part because, um, you know, when there's been a coronial inquest, a formal coronial inquest, a public coronial inquest, some jurisdictions will post the findings of the coroner on their public websites. And so I'd already in 2019, as I was reminded yesterday by a journalist, um, had already started to review cases um, back then. And I could see that there were some patterns emerging just in um, 15 cases that I'd looked at. And I soon realised that we needed to look at more than that, that we needed to look at um, this in a more systematic way. And so I applied um, to the National Coronial Information System and Service uh, to access their records, um, and they hold records for that full period. And that was to look at inquests as well as investigations. Uh, and, you know, the ethics process alone is, is quite a considerable process, um, getting access to those files um, across the jurisdictions that takes a lot of time. And then um, once those files have been uh, made available, it is about then going through them systematically, looking at um, and understanding both um, the victim's experiences, what we understand about the crime um, that's been committed against them, what we understand about the offenders, the, the alleged offenders that are involved, what we understand of in the records in terms of um, how the criminal justice um, system has been involved and proceeded. Uh, but it also tells us stories too about um, what other services are involved and at what points they've been involved in, in these cases. So this, it was very much getting access to those records and then thinking through how do we tell the stories um, in, a, in a systematic way to appreciate these circumstances. So this is the first paper and there will be further papers that look at those other areas um, that, that I've just mentioned. This is, it is the first paper um, focusing specifically on police failures because police are our first responders typically. And so the amount of responsibility that weighs so heavily on first responders getting the job right when our victims call for help is quite enormous. Let's unpack that a little um, in terms of this focus on the actions of the police um, in these kinds of situations. So I understand that you looked at a number of um, I suppose, areas of that response, including triple zero calls, um, decision-making uh, when police were arriving on the scene, um, also uh, responses to breaches of orders, so an order such as um, an AVO or apprehended violence order, um, 
yes. and also broader police accountability. So there is a lot there. What What are some of the things that stood out to you? So some of the things that stood out um, for me, uh, you know, if we, if we start at the, at the start, right, so when victims um, call triple zero or if people within the household call triple zero um, or indeed neighbours call triple zero, it's an important trigger for police that something urgent is happening and it requires police attendance. So when so what I saw in, in a number of case files um, was that there would be situations where victims would call and there would be records of a number of calls coming from this residence. Uh, and the victim would be heard moaning, um, crying. You could hear violence happening in the background. They would register that it was coming from a particular residence, but because the victim didn't speak, they didn't um, send a police car. And it wasn't, um, and as one example I give in this paper, um, it wasn't until um, several calls had been made and the police uh, then got calls from neighbours um, after the partner had alerted that there was something wrong with the victim that police then attended. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because I think that we need to appreciate as first responders to those triple zero calls that victims when they're calling may not be in a situation where it's safe to speak right that doesn't mean that the call should be disregarded um further it may be that the victim has a head injury that their jaw is broken um and that they can't physically speak and again that doesn't mean that the call should be disregarded if anything, it means that the call should be escalated. Um, and so it's these circumstances that, you know, the coroner in, in this particular case that, that I provide as, a, as an example asked the question, if the police had turned up sooner at the first call or the second call, would the victim have survived? And I think these are important questions and these are indeed the questions that are being asked at the present moment in a case that's happened just recently in Sydney. Um, so I, I think that we do have to think very carefully around how we respond um, to those triple zero calls. Women on the line. You're listening to Professor Kylie Cripps speaking about new research into systemic racism and police failures in relation to intimate partner violence against Indigenous women. If you need support in relation to our conversation today, you can call Lifeline on 131114 or 1800 RESPECT, that's 1800 737 732. If you're an Aboriginal person in Victoria who is experiencing or has experienced family violence, you can call JIRA on 1800 105 303. This is Kylie now. In terms of uh, initial assessment of, of situations when police actually do attend, you know, police have general orders, general practice orders that they're given. Um, they tell them how they're to, to behave, how they're to operate in domestic violence situations. They tell them how to conduct investigations. 
right? So there is an expectation that for consistency of approach, the police will operate according to those guidelines. But what I saw in so many of these files was there was not a consistency of approach um, and that many police officers were using their discretion in terms of how they approached these cases. And so it, it's in those moments that we see um, the discretion compromising these victims' lives. Um, and one example that, that stood out and will stand out in my mind forever um, is the one um, that I've written about, and that is of a woman that had was, was able to leave her residence, was out the front on the curb, um, waiting when police arrived. At no time did those police speak to her um, or engage with a conversation with her. And they assumed that she was affected by alcohol um, because of her state of undress. They put her in the back of a vehicle um, and they spoke to her partner and he was quite um, engaging. Um, they assumed he was sober. They assumed um, that he, I'm assuming that, that, that they thought he was a safe individual. Um, there was another call that came over the police radio of a more um, significant situation um, developing in streets um, close by. The police directed the alleged offender to take the victim out of the back of the dimming van and to take her back inside. He did. Um, the police left. 15 to 20 minutes later, another police car arrived. Uh, the people inside the house reported that she'd been um, further the further victim of further violence uh, in that um, period. And she collapsed while they were there um, and, unfortunately, um, she didn't make it. The police, uh, the coroner in that case asked the police, you know, what were they thinking <laughs> um, in, in the decision-making that they were making in, in that um, particular case? Um, and, what, you know, what was their perception of the victim? Um, and the police officer in this particular case said, we thought she was just a drunk Aboriginal female. Um, and it was, it was that perception that led them to behave the way they did. The coroner asked him uh, to rethink that answer and he did not correct that answer. He said that that's what he thought. Um, these are our important reflections um, and observations because if that's the view if that's the perception that police hold when they attend such a serious circumstance as this, um, they compromise that victim's safety right from the very instant that they arrive. That woman um, would be with us today if they'd chosen a different way of handling that situation. Women on the line. 
If you need support in relation to today's conversation, you can call Lifeline on 131114 or 1-800-RESPECT on 1800 732 If you're an Aboriginal person in Victoria who is experiencing or has experienced family violence, you can call JIRA on 1800 105303. On community radio around so-called Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. This week, we're speaking with Professor Kylie Cripps, Director of Monash Indigenous Studies Centre and Palawa Woman, about her recently published article, Indigenous Women and Intimate Partner Homicide in Australia, Confronting the Impunity of Policing Failures. In your article, you note that um, these women's deaths were in most instances entirely preventable. And I think the the harrowing story that you have just shared is a good segue to talk about the link to systemic racism that you you make in your article. It it is. I I think, you know, one of the the coroners that... um, that it, that had also examined um, and, and and the investigations of, of these cases. He he had examined um, n- nearly eighteen percent of the inquest and investigations in, in this case sample, and he reflected in in one report that he felt the issue was institutional racism. Now I was surprised when I came across that finding because. At no time, I, I've been working in this field for, for more than 20 years, and at no time has that ever been in um, the public domain, has that ever attracted media attention. So he went on to say that, you know, that this is a more subtle um, concept uh, than overt racism, um, which had influenced the the way in which police were um, providing their service. Um, and he, re- he referenced a, a, a murder investigation of, of a particular man um, in London um, that happened in 1993 that defined systemic racism. And, you know, when I read this definition, and I'll read it to you because it, it accurately holds true to all of these cases. Um, That definition says that the only explanation or excuse offered to us for the failures and mistakes in this case are that they are the result of incompetence and misjudgment. Incompetence does not, without more, become discrimination. But mere incompetence cannot of itself account for the whole catalogue of failures mistakes, misjudgments, and lack of direction and control, which bedeviled the investigation. And when the coroner made this reference, this um, this definition, he, he made it in, in the context of three, the, um, three Aboriginal women's deaths. And he said that he felt um, that if it wasn't institutional racism, then perhaps it was lazy policing just trying to find the easiest way to wind up an investigation, or perhaps it was cultural ignorance. And I think when when we look at these cases and we, when we look at the patterns of police not wanting to um, follow through on Aboriginal women's requests for 
domestic violence orders, when they won't follow through on the breaches of those domestic violence orders, um, they compromise Indigenous women's safety. And it is the, the systematic nature of that um, is what you see examining 151 cases. And so I, I think, it, it, you know, I, I agree with this coroner when he makes a, a statement as profound as that. And further, um, having reflected on the current moment, um, the last six to seven months where we've seen the Queensland police inquiry into domestic and family violence, um, where uh, they've recognised that misogyny, sexism and racism um, have impacted the police's response to domestic violence in that state. Um, when we've seen here in um, in Victoria uh, in, in just the last few weeks, uh, the police commissioner and the police minister appear before the Europe Commission and apologise for systemic racism impacting our families. Um, these are profound statements um, and a reflection that they know that this culture exists. Um, within their police forces. And I'll also say, too, that the Northern Territory Police Commissioner was asked last year um, whether he believed that his police force was, um, was affected by systemic racism. His response was he didn't think that um, they had systemic racism, but he felt that there were police officers that had views that were affected by sexism, racism, and misogyny. Um, these, these findings point to a system that needs to be transformed, um, that needs to, to hear these women's stories. These are the worst case examples. Um, and it is at the heart of hearing these stories that we must listen to the changes that need to occur um, to, to ensure that future deaths don't. And just quickly, Kylie, because unfortunately we are running out of time um, to discuss this extremely important topic. Um, at the end of your article, you note some suggestions for potential changes to address this kind of systemic racism and the other problems. Um, would you mm. like to to briefly unpack that for us. Yeah, so a, a couple of things that I just draw um, to, to people's attention, and that is is that, you know, we must learn um, from these women's deaths. Their lives matter to all of us, um, but especially to their families. Um, we honour their memories by doing all we can to improve the, the systems, the institutional cultures and societal attitudes that fail to hear their cries for help. Um, we must be doing domestic and family violence death reviews of all of our women's deaths. And we, we also need to be doing regular checks and balances on, on systems and services engaging with our women and girls to ensure that the services have accountability. Um, and critically, how, uh, the Indigenous community needs to be, and Indigenous researchers need to be a part of this sector um, part of that um, review process. And the other um, important point that I make here is, is that we, I would urge Australia to take part in the UN Global Femicide Watch Initiative so that we have accountability that's not just internal to Australia but external so that we might learn from what's happening globally and adopt some of those practices 
but also that that scrutiny um, might be enough to, to factor, um, factor change. You know, Indigenous women and girls have ex- who have experienced violence deserve to be treated with humility, respect and dignity. Um, that's a big and important message of this piece of work. Working with them and for them um, to achieve safety must always be at the centre of the work we do. And the stories that I've presented in, in this article remind us that, that we can and, and must do better. Thank you so much, Kylie. And if listeners do want to learn more about um, these issues, what is the best place for them to go to find your research or more information? Um, if they want to find my research, it's on uh, current issues in criminal justice. So if they just Google current issues in criminal justice, it, it will come up um, on, on that website. Uh, or alternatively, they're more than welcome to, to email me at Monash and I'll make sure that they get the link. And is there anything that you would like to add before we finish up today? Well, uh, I, I think what I would like to finish with is to, to say a thank you. Um, there are many uh, women in our community that have backed these stories and backed this research, um, and they have given me strength to write this um, and to bring these stories to, to, um, to the public today. Um, and I honour um, not just these women that have died but also these wonderful women um, that have been behind the scenes encouraging this work to be um, in the public. That was Professor Kylie Cripps, Director of Monash Indigenous Studies Centre and Palawa Woman, who spoke with us today about her new research seeking to understand the stories behind 151 Indigenous women's deaths. Her article, Indigenous Women and Intimate Partner Homicide in Australia, Confronting the Impunity of Policing Failures, is published online in Current Issues in Criminal Justice. And we'll also link to Kylie's research on the Women on the Line website, 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. Again, if you need to speak with someone in relation to today's conversation, you can call Lifeline on 131114 or 1800RESPECT. That's 1800 737 732. If you're an Aboriginal person in Victoria who is experiencing or has experienced family violence, you can call JIRA on 1800 105 303. And that's all for Women on the Line today. Women on the Line is a community radio national feminist current affairs program featuring the voices of women and gender diverse people. This program was produced in NAM, Melbourne, with the amazing support of 3CR staff, so a big thank you to them. Women on the Line is broadcast across so-called Australia on the Community Radio Network, and we greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womenonthelion at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 If you would like more information about today's program or to listen to the show again, you can find what you need on the Women on the Line website, 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. I'm Emma Hart. Hope you can tune in again next time. Thank you.